So this is a powerful story. It's, 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 you sort of saw as we read it that Jesus is there, and that was Matthew was reading at the beginning, and then he disappears for most of chapter 9 and then comes back at the end. And there's this sort of testimony, this trial of sorts about who Jesus is and where he's from and what he does. Um, and as I was sitting and, and reading it this week and thinking about it, it was it was hard for me because there's, there's a little bit of like this is a miracle, right? We talk about miracles and we talk about signs. But really what happens here is, and as we've been going through John, I've become more and more convinced myself that the prologue to the Gospel of John, what's said in chapter 1, is almost the, the condensed version of everything that happens in the Gospel. And so one of the things it says in the beginning of the Gospel is this, that the that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus, when he's asked about well, who sinned this man, he says, I'm the light of the world. And he talks about night and darkness. And, and what Buford started us with this morning is that idea of, you know, what does it mean to be in blindness? What does it mean to be in night? What does it mean to be in darkness? You know, what the prologue of John's Gospel says for us is that it's this light that shines into the world, and while darkness might try to extinguish it, the darkness can't put it out. And if you look at the story of chapter 9 as, as playing with this or, or moving with this theme, it becomes clear that the blindness, and, and this is where that quote comes from in the back of the bulletin, is the blindness is the story of all of us. It's the blindness of our lives. And so we can get caught up in did Jesus heal a blind man, which is, of course, an important question. But what this story is really about is how Jesus heals the blindness of the believers. Of those who know him, they move from the space of blindness and darkness, as, as, as um, Park read from Paul's reading, that you were in darkness, but now you are in the light. And everything that is touched by the light becomes illuminated. And so it is for the disciples, for the people of Jesus, to become these people who are illuminated by this light. One of the best parts about this message, I'm the light of the world, is that you're not the light of the world. But it's for us to be able to, yeah, God, what does that mean? God has that job. Um, you know, we don't have that job. But it's for us to be touched by that light. To have our blindness healed and for sight to come back into our eyes. Or even so much that we, we don't even know we've lost it. And this is one of the, the great parts about this light and darkness metaphor that John's going to use here and he's going to use in, in his epistles and that Paul plays with, is that to know it's dark, you need to see some light. To know that you're blind, you need to have your sight restored to some degree. I mean, people can tell you you're blind, but you don't know what that's like, right? And so as Christ comes into the light of the world and touches things, it becomes clear that there is darkness in the world. There's darkness in our own souls and lives. There's darkness in the outside world. And as Christians, I think, we're called... Um, in mission, this, this, the, the idea that this pool is called sent, uh, which is this phrase that, that the disciples are sent out in John's Gospel too. So as we go out into mission, we go into the places of darkness. We go to near to darkness. And one of the things I always believe, and I don't know if I've ever said it quite clearly, is that if you want to explore the darkness of your own heart and soul and life, it's going to push you into the darkness that exists in the world. If you're not quite ready to do that interior work, and you want to go out into the darkness into the world as Jesus sends you, it's going to touch your heart and soul and life to show you of that darkness as well. 
that, that there's no not dealing with this darkness and blindness that comes and happens in the world. And that's the hard part about the story is, is that Jesus is walking along and he sees a blind man. Jesus sees somebody who's, who's stuck in this state. And, and there's this ways in which that's us, right, that we've been talking about, that Jesus sees us blind alongside the road. And the disciples' question is interesting. It comes back at the end, and we'll talk about it. But is, is that who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus' response, and this is this is a question, you know, why do good things happen to bad people? We have a, that was a New York Times bestseller, I think, in the 80s. I didn't buy it. I was too young. Um, but but that was why do good things happen, why do bad things happen to good people, which the correlative is also interesting. Why do good things happen to bad people? Um, it's just as interesting as a question, in my opinion. Um, but at the same time, you know, that's sort of what's happening here, is, is why was this man born blind? And then when I was in seminary, we talked about the book of Job in my Old Testament class. One of the things the professor, we were talking about is like, how did the Jews come up with this idea that this man did this when they had the book of Job? And the book of Job clearly points out that we don't know how God works and what God does, and so it's for us to sort of remain in mystery. There are passages in the Old Testament that also point out that, that there's sin that's this inheritance, right? But if Job, and I think works very well as a definitive word on the subject, is that it's not for you to figure out. It's not for you to know how these things happen. This man was born blind. But they were making this mistake. And I asked the professor, I said, how did they do that? I mean, they had Job. They read Job. How did they make that mistake? And he was like, and this was around the time that I think uh, Pat Robertson had blamed the earthquake in Haiti on voodoo. And he was like, my professor, he gave an answer. But then he was like, look, we have Job. And we have Jesus saying this. And we still do it. It's this human sort of thing that we want to blame something for why this happened. We want to make up a story for why this is. And I was like, oh, yeah, right, we too have not figured out that it's not for us to say how these things happen. But Jesus' response is that he was blind so that the works of God might be revealed. We'll come back to that at the end, because I think this story is, is very tight structure. And what happens is Jesus makes this uh, mud pie, puts it on the man's eyes, and tells him to go wash. Now, that seems like a weird thing to do, but what Jesus is doing is, is work on the Sabbath, right? To make mud in the Jewish culture, in this culture, is to do work. To knead bread is to do work. To make something like this is to be doing work. And so on the Sabbath, you're not supposed to do work. One of the things I love about that Jesus took mud and made it wet and made, placed it on the man's back is it, it can kind of remind you of the beginning of Genesis, where God takes dirt and blows on it and makes man. And what you can see happening in this passage, and we talked about this on, with the other Sabbath healing and, and how the disciples can't keep Jesus from doing things that get him on trouble on the Sabbath, which it seemed like somebody's job and he's not doing it well. Uh, probably Judas. Judas is like, oh, I'm sleeping. Sorry, I should have kept him away from blind people today. Um, but what happens is, is he makes this mud and he places it on his eyes. Um, and it's as if God is restoring creation. Why does Jesus work on the Sabbath, as we talked about in that previous story? Was it so that he is doing the work that his Father does, and he's restoring what's there. He's restoring new creation and new life. So the process of us moving from blindness and darkness into the light is to be restored to what God made us as, to be restored to, be restored to life, to be brought back into the world. 
being placed in the place we were beginning in. Now the relationship with God healed. But it's interesting because this story goes on from there, right? And, and there's this, there's this uh, ways in which the man sort of moves through these steps of knowing Jesus. And so the man comes back, and the people can't believe it's him, right? Like, it, it's, how is this man seen again? It's not him. That was, uh, it was, as uh, we read it aloud up there, I almost laughed a little bit because it's such a funny scene where it's like, he looks like him, but he can see. Uh, he looks like him, and, and you could imagine that, that when people are healed from certain things uh, in our lives, too, they don't just look like the person, but they stand up straighter sometimes. They, they have more presence to them. So he's moving around freely. He's not just somebody who begs anymore, which was his livelihood before then, but he's somebody who has, has dignity, can move in the world. And so they're like, it's not him, it's not him. And then he keeps telling them, no, it's me, which I think is just funny. It's like, you know, okay, guys, it's, it's me. But it, but it, that it mirrors our lives, I think, too. I mean, many of us were, we're not, you're not born a Christian, but, but um, have been Christians for much of our life. But if you came, became a Christian later in life, that people will, will see you and they'll be like, it's, it's like that person, but it's not that person. Something's changed about them. When they, when they show up to the party, it's not the same. Um, they're different. Uh, uh, Kelly became a Christian later in life. Um, and I think even with her friend groups today, they, they look at her and they're like, it's Kelly, we know it's Kelly, but she's a little bit different. She prays for us now, which is not something Kelly would have ever said before. And, and these things can play out in our lives too. And it, it's almost as, as if many of us are like, I never had that moment before I became a Christian. It, it can show up in our process of sort of sanctification and moving toward holiness as Jesus works in our souls and lives. That, that there'll be times, I think, where people will be like, you know, Matt was, uh, and for my, my sake, uh, in college, Matt was, should have thought about this, because there's all sorts of things I don't want to say. Um, <laughs> uh, had lacked compassion for the struggles of the world. Um, and yet he's one now who goes and, and can spend time with homeless people and sit with them and, and pray for them and isn't threatened. Um, something's changed for him. Um, there's a, a better example, actually, is the one I thought of, but I've just remembered, is my youth ministers, when my parents tell them I'm a pastor, the youth sponsors and ministers go, God must have done a mighty work in him. <laughs> uh, my mom says, how bad were you guys? Because uh, uh, we were not, like, you know, real bad kids, but... But certainly on youth ministry, we were we pushed the boundaries to the point of breaking, let's say. And so, you know, for them to say, oh, yeah, Matt's a pastor, I guess. Um, I guess that could be true. It's similar to what happens for this man and for us. Is that, is, is that them? Is that you? I am he, he says. But they ask him what he happens, and he says, the man called Jesus did this. This is his first answer to who this person is. He did this, and they, they want to know where he is, and it's, it's like they want to have Jesus touch their lives as well, but he doesn't know where he's gone. And so, you know, the man called Jesus is this guy that, that he's talking to, and so he comes before the, the Pharisees, the people who would sort of investigate something like this, and it's, they look into, like, what happened here? You know, he worked on the Sabbath. This is where that detail comes in. He works on the Sabbath, and yet he heals somebody from blindness. What's, what's, how are we going to weigh these two things, right? He's, he's doing miracles that are restoring things, and we know that these are good things. Isaiah says that the blind shall receive sight, and the deaf 
will cure again. That they know that these things are signs of this, and yet he's violating sort of one of their sacred ritual codes at the same time. He's working on the Sabbath, right? Um, and so they want to investigate and figure this out. Now, one of my favorite parts about this discussion that's going to happen between the Pharisees and the man born blind is that they're going to end up in this spot. I would say it now, might have been early, but that this is this is a miracle, right? He was blind, but now he sees. And there's a show that I'm watching with Kelly called The Passage, which is about vampires disappeared. Okay, so I said that I was like, how do I admit that I'm watching the show? Because I think I'm better than vampires. Sorry, about <laughs> vampires, but I'm not. Um, and I'm telling you, so you'll watch the show and it doesn't get canceled. But the real point of this is because uh, it's going to get canceled. No, it's, it's a good show. But one of the things that's fascinating that's happening in the show, and it's, I think this awesome conundrum in the modern world that's playing out, is they've done this science experiment and invented like these things that drink blood, disintegrate in the light, um, can't handle the light, and uh, are stronger and like they're like just weird. And they're I mean, for all of us, you're like, oh, that's a vampire, right? And one of the scientists is like, vampires don't exist. That's sort of the, the, the conundrum. So for the, the Jews here, it's like, it's either this guy, they're gonna get stuck in the spot, it's either it's this guy comes from God, or that this miracle doesn't exist in some ways. Like they can't have it both ways is gonna be the struggle. And so for us in the modern world, it's like when something like happens that doesn't fit our categories, if you've heard of people who, who were going into cancer treatment and people prayed and it got better, and, and stuff like that, which is one of the things that that can happen. You know, and it, why does it happen? You know, I'm a modern skeptic as much as most people. Why do people get healed and other people don't? That's not my natural proclivity to believe these things. But when they interview doctors or talk to doctors, it's very much like, well, it must have been the wrong test. It must have been like these things can't happen. Like those things can't exist. So we just say something else, which is which is part of being taught in the is this a miracle type thing. But they bring him forward and they ask him, you know, what happened? And he tells them the story of what this person did, of what Jesus did for him. And they talk to him about, you know, where, uh, how he worked on the Sabbath and how this has happened. And at the end of the discussion, they ask him, well, who do you think he is? And he says, he's a prophet. So he's moved from the guy called Jesus, touched my eyes and healed me. And living in the light, living in this transformed space, he begins to say, this person is a prophet. This person is one who's got the mark of God in them, who does work on the behalf of God. This is a bit too much for the people trying to judge whether this person could be a prophet. And so they call his parents in, which is, uh, you know, with like a school conference. This is bad news if you're, um, uh, the religious leaders call your parents in, you're like, okay. Um, and, and the parents uh, have this moment where they too have to sort of confess that this is our son. He was blind, and now he can see. And yet they're caught in this tension. And this is, you know, the, the world that the Gospel of John was written in is near the time when Christians are getting expelled from sort of the, the, the temple, as most people think. It's written along the time when Christians are being dropped from the Jewish community. Because it wasn't clear in the first parts, let's say, 50 years of Christianity, that Judaism and Christianity needed to go separate ways entirely is that Jesus as the Jewish Messiah who sort of fulfills the word of God and is, is the one who's there is, is, is this call. And so many of the Christians, I think, thought, you know, as we study, as we go through these texts, and this is why when Paul goes to any new city on missionary journey in Acts, he goes right to the synagogue. 
He goes right to those places and begins to preach. Because there's this idea that they had is that they'll come to the belief and this is the Messiah. If we keep reading and studying together. And in Romans 9 through 11, the chapters 9 through 11, is, is about Paul agonizing over this. That, that Israel hasn't, Jews haven't come to this belief. You know, that's the part of Romans we don't read. 12 is great, 8 is great, 1 through 7 is nice. 9 through 11, it's like Paul's agony over what's happening. These people aren't coming to this. And he ends that, that part with this um, doxology about the mysteries and riches of mercies of God going beyond what he can see. So that's part of what this world is written in. But the parents here are fearing, and this is, this is partially because of the world that, that John's gospel comes out of, is that they'll be too expelled from the synagogue for confessing that Jesus is the Messiah. That they'll too have a penalty in their lives. It's not clear that, that reading this is if that this is a cowardly move, a reserved move, a, uh, I mean, their logic is, is sound. He's of age, which means he can testify, ask him. But they seem to have this, this sense in which they will be cast out, where the story ends with the sun cast out is powerful and dark, too, at the same time. And so they tell them to call him back. And they call him back and they interview him again. And he says, you know, this is clearly one who comes from God. Nobody's ever restored the sight of a blind person before. And yet this, for this to happen for me in my life, this person needs to have come from God. He's moved from the guy called Jesus to he's a prophet, one who's sort of set apart for God. To this one, he comes from God in a way that makes him true. The evidence of what he's done. And so as he meets with them a second time, they say to him, you know, why don't you just um, give, give God glory, I think it is, which is in some sense to say, confess that this man's a sinner. Confess what he's done is wrong. As we, as Christians, live in this world, there's that temptation to confess that this isn't real. Confess that that healing that happened for you, you should deny. I think it's hard in our own lives as we change, as God, as God comes near to us, as God touches us and, and restores us to say that that's a work of God. I sometimes get immodest around that. You know, oh yeah, I started doing this. I changed my diet. I did this. You know, I'm feeling better about things. And yet, you know, in my heart and in my study and my prayer, there are times when it's clearly come from my work of connecting with God. That it's God who touched me. Now, one of the things that, that when I was a youth minister that they talked about was the most formative thing you could do for your kids is do something for God and don't say anything else why other than it's your offering to God. So an example was, let's say that your family is very committed to Monday Night Football and that's like your thing. They said, you know, to take that time and to say we're going to the soup kitchen one Monday a year, month, two Mondays, weekly Mondays, whatever it is. And when your kids say, why are we doing that? Don't gloss it in like, well, it's nice. It makes us good people. We should contribute to society. We should, uh, you know, these are people Jesus loves. That. But to say that this is for God. Because when we code it in all those ways, it becomes sort of this moralistic dimension of our lives in which like, oh, that's why we do it. But to do it for that sake, they said, that's formative. That can make something. You know, why are we giving up our vacation to go and serve in this area to go see these people? It's because of God. You know, that's how we give God glory and honor in a way that, that points to something. And yet, for this man, they're saying, say something else. So they have him, you know, tell us the story again. He's like, the, the, 
It's another comical part. Because I've told you the story already. You want me to tell you it again so that you can become his disciples? Um, which is, you know, that evangelistic task that we shy away from, right? Like, to go into these places and to say, like, you know, this is what God's done in my life, and I'll tell it to you again so that you can become his disciples, so that you can be invited into this. You know, there could be a temptation for us and for him to say, I've received, I was blind, I've been rescued from darkness, I have my light, and that this is a special revelation. This is for me alone. This is something that needs to be guarded. This is something that, that had it is personal, right? And yet he's saying, you know, you too can do this. You too can become disciples of this one. And their answer that we're disciples of Moses should remind us of last week with the, with the feeding is that Jesus in all the Gospels is one who prefigures, is, is one who, who is in the figure of all of Israel's teachers and prophets. He's, he's like Elijah. He's like Moses. He's like um, Samuel when it says he, or yeah, Samuel in groans and stature. Like, he's like these people. Like, that Jesus, the gospel writers, and Jesus is like, is encapsulated in a way that he is witness to these things, but he breaks their bounds too. He's like Moses, but better. He's like Elijah, but is able to do more things. He's like um, beyond that. And that's one of the things that they're always doing. So that's, we talked about that last week with the bread. You know, he feeds them manna the way that Moses fed them manna. And what he says to them is he instructs them is that the manna comes from God, which is true in Israel's history. And they were like, we want you to give us manna like Moses. And he says, that comes from God. And I'm the bread that doesn't run out. I'm the bread of life that will fill you differently than that manna did. And so it's interesting that they say, no, we've got the right side here. We're disciples of Moses, and you're disciples of that man. And so they kick the man out of the synagogue. He ends up thrown out of, of the center of religious and political and, and common life at this time, which isn't an easy thing to imagine. I mean, this, this, this question that they ask at the beginning, imagine you overhear this for, for much of your life, is who sinned, this man or his parents? That's your life, right? Who sinned, this man or his parents? Who created the problem that you're stuck in? Who's made your, your, your sight dim? Who's, who's put you in darkness? This man, your parents, your brother, your sister, your family, the powers that be, the government, who's placed you in those spots? And what Jesus says to that is he doesn't want to answer that question. But he wants to say that these things, these challenges are so that the works of God might be revealed. That God might be revealed in these spots. And so they, they cast him back out of the synagogue as a sinner. Which is, it's hard to hit how sad this would be, or it is, you know. That, that he's finally restored to, to being able to be in these places. Because he was in that blind, but I was blind, but now I see. Which is the theme of John's gospel. I was in darkness, but now I see. This caused him to lose that. To be thrown out of that place. And so he is tossed out of the synagogue as a sinner. Um, you've been a sinner since birth, is what they tell him. And so he is sitting there, and Jesus comes up to him. And Jesus says, you know, that, that, you know, are you ready to believe in the Son of Man? Are you ready 
to have the figure, and son of man is, is a hard phrase. There's a translation I like that, that translates it the human one, which I think encapsulates both that he is the fulfillment of humanity and also this one who's testified to in, in the Old Testament that comes about at the restoration of the age. Um, but the Son of Man, there's, there's debates on what Son of Man means. But it's clearly that is, is he the one that has been talked about who's going to bring restoration? Is he the one who comes at the or at the, the beginning of this new time and new age? And the person says to him, which is, is that, yeah, but who is he? And Jesus says to him that he is the one who's restored his sight, and he is the one. And he says, Lord, I believe, and he worships him. See, the story moves from, from that darkness, from that blindness, to this one finding himself before the Lord of humanity, the one who created all things and worshiping him. It's a transition that, that, that's amazing, I think, when you think about this, that, is that as he's cast out of the temple, and, and John Christendom, who's a great preacher from the third century said, you know, the one who is the Lord of the temple finds him as he's cast out of the temple. The one who is his, the one who's present in the temple is the one who goes to him there. It's an interesting thing to think about is our, our religious spaces and the people we cast out and the things that we do. Like, we also have to go to be with him, to profess that Christ is here, be ready to believe in this. Be ready to believe in the restoration of these things. You have to go out of the temple, as Jesus says, to find this, to see the one who's blind but can now see. And so, to end, you know, this question of who sinned, um, which we've been circling around, is that is who sinned to make the world dark? Who was the one who started? the darkness in the world, and we can say Adam. But the fact of the matter is, is that this darkness exists so that we can move into the light, that we can move into God's world, that we can we can not see darkness as our home, but we can move into the light that shines in the world, and the darkness doesn't overcome it. See, that's, that's the, the, the overarching question is, is, is they cast them out in the sinner again, is that it's not who sinned, that's the interesting question to Jesus. It's how is the light going to shine in your life? How are you going to claim for yourself, I was blind, but now I see? How are you going to see restoration? It's not easy to do. Man is called forward to testify, it's denied who he is, and he loses a lot in the process. And yet God's light enables him to find worship and community and life there. Our blindness reveals that there is darkness. But it's the light of God that will shine in that darkness that reveals healing and new life. So who sinned is not the question we have to ask, but that this happens so that God might be revealed to us, in us, and through us, as we go as missionaries and as lives, as people who have seen the light and testify to it and find ourselves in the strangest places. Let us pray. God, we have heard the story of the man born blind. We know of ourselves born blind. We know of a world that wants to draw us back to darkness. 
You know, the darkness that exists inside of us and the darkness that exists in the, in the broken places of the world, the left behind places, the places of addiction, depression, anxiety. And yet with these things, who sinned? How did that come about? We're called to see that these things might have happened so that we might, you might be revealed to us. That the light might come out. That we might be healed. That we might see. That we might move from those who were born blind to see in blindness at times now. But through your touch and healing, they can see. And through that, you meet us along the side of the road, cast out from places we thought might be home, and invite us into the worship of you. May this be a place of worship and healing. May this time and space be a time in which we can claim for ourselves the sight that you've restored, and that your light has come into the world and changed us. Yes, this in your holy name. Amen.